presidents can't inflame insurrection in their final weeks and then walk away like nothing happened. A new January exception in our precious beloved constitution that prior generations have died for and fought for so the corrupt presidents have several weeks to get away with whatever it is they want to do. The second impeachment trial of Donald Trump will confront senators with at least one question, maybe two if we're lucky. The first question, is President Trump guilty of inciting the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th or not? The second question, if and only if he's convicted, should he be disqualified from holding public office in the future? We've been conditioned for good reason to believe that Republicans will never allow Trump to face consequences for his actions when they can protect him. And since they have the power to acquit him, remember conviction by the Senate requires two-thirds of voting senators to agree, we shouldn't hold our breath expecting them to do the right thing. The votes may not be there to convict the former president. And, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers and, and do the math, uh, it seems likely the president could be acquitted. But what if they did? Would that be the end of the story? Should it be? It would certainly amount to punishment for Trump pertaining to his central role in the insurrection. And it would solve the existential risk that he might seek the presidency again. It would also be a symbolic rebuke of Trump's style of violent, anti-democratic politics. But would it be an adequate amount of accountability? The Trump presidency culminated in the insurrection, but it wasn't defined by it. Trump presided over historic, far-reaching corruption, much of which remains hidden from the public. We know he committed at least a few crimes, and let's be honest, he probably committed many more. He degraded the rule of law and completed the fusion of the Republican Party with a vast right-wing propaganda apparatus, leaving us one election away from a revival of mass deception and an authoritarian takeover. Trump may be acquitted for inciting the insurrection, but even if he's convicted, we'll still confront profound questions about what true, complete accountability would look like. In his first days in office, President Biden has rooted out some prominent Trump loyalists who tried to embed themselves in the federal government, a practice known as burrowing in. The Democratic House passed this article of impeachment, of course, and have taken an oversight interest in a few scandals, Trump's coronavirus response, and his business negotiations with a right-wing social media company. But as we race towards a verdict in this trial, all Democrats will have to address the question of what to do about all that other stuff. My guest this week is Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She's a professor at New York University who specializes in fascism, authoritarian leaders, propaganda, threats to democracy around the world, and how to counter them. We'll discuss what true justice for the Trump era would look like, what kinds of accountability are available to us in the real world, and what America has to look forward to if we don't make use of them. I'm Brian Boitler. Welcome to Rubicon. Ruth Ben-Ghat, great to have you on. Thanks for having me. So we'll talk about the impeachment trial and what comes afterward in a minute, but I want to start by imagining that the insurrection never happened. Everything else did, 
the whole Trump presidency, his refusal to concede, claiming that he was robbed, trying to overturn the election, just that he didn't convene a mob and encourage it to sack the Capitol. I feel like that was the world we thought we were going to enter until the insurrection actually occurred, that Trump would still be on Twitter, uh, he'd be out of power, but kind of menacing all of us on social media. And I think the insurrection kind of swamped our memory of the fact that accountability was a big topic even before all of this. So imagine back to January 5th or thereabouts, what were you thinking then about how Democrats, Congress, the Biden administration, other entities should reckon with the Trump years? One of the problems with individuals like Trump, uh, and he had in, in uh, Berlusconi was a president who didn't wreck democracy, but there's the whole strongman tradition, is that uh, just as their messaging, their propaganda is overwhelming, you know, 100 tweets a day sometimes, so are, is the magnitude of their crimes. And so it's, uh, you know how uh, Bannon said, you know, you, you fled the zone with shit, excuse my language, it's his language, but you also fled the zone with crime. And the crimes can, you know, be uh, small things, seemingly, like a Hatch Act, which becomes small violations in perspective with the huge things that happened. So it can be very difficult to know where to start and which crimes to pick. <laughs> this is a classic page taken from the dictator's playbook. Overwhelm the country with chaos, scandals, grifts, and trials. Kick up lots of dust and seize power before it settles. Even if you fail, you've created such a tangled mess that no one has the energy to hold you accountable. Ruth made it her mission to study that playbook and the tactics shared between strongmen like Hitler, Mussolini, Pinochet, and Trump. She found the most startling similarities between Trump and former Italian leader Silvio Berlusconi. Berlusconi was a master of television, of media. He was the first to normalize extremism. He brought the far right into government, and as was um, turning government into a mechanism of self-defense. He had dozens of corruption trials for uh, charges of fraud, bribery, and more. He was the master of plausible deniability. So there was many commonalities with organized crime, corruption, far right, uh, Putin worship, very suspect uh, relationship with Putin. And he used to, you know, make himself the mouthpiece of Putin's policies to uh, the EU. So very, very similar. Berlusconi held power a few times between 1994 and 2013. Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has run the gauntlet and has come out on top. As Silvio Berlusconi arrived to tender his resignation, the boos and whistles would tell him Italy has had enough. Europe thought it had finished with him. Yet Silvio Berlusconi is back on the campaign trail. Despite embarrassing sex scandals and mounting corruption allegations, the people kept voting him back in. Can you fathom Trump and his spawn yo-yoing in and out of the White House over the next 20 years? So I needed to know what went wrong in Italy. Berlusconi's main opposition was known as the center-left party. What did they miscalculate? The center-left didn't pass any corruption reform, and citizens got very angry. And so that's a lesson for us. The center-left was sick of Berlusconi dominating the news. And so they wanted to turn the page. They were sick of, you know, focusing on him. 
And as you can imagine, the asphyxiation, you know, you feel with Trump and more Trump, Berlusconi, more Miss Berlusconi. But this was a mistake not to pass any anti-corruption, not to prosecute, not to do anything. Because Berlusconi came back in less than two years later, and then he was more corrupt than ever. And there was no hope of any accountability. And even when he was forced out again by uh, the Eurozone crisis, he was forced to resign. He was prohibited, then prosecution started, and he was prohibited from running for office for five years. But his party and his personality cult endured, so much so that two years later in 2013 elections, Forza Italia lost by less than 1%, despite sex scandals with underage women, huge corruption. He was like the Teflon guy, just like Trump. So that's an example where the opposition did not make a very strong stand and it endured and he didn't and the party resisted. What indications if any have you seen in these early days of the new government uh, that Democrats intend to prioritize that kind of accountability and make the the judgment calls that you're uh, suggesting that they should between, you know, the big deal uh, crimes and the smaller ones? Um, I'm very pleased with what I've seen from uh, the Biden administration. Its messaging has privileged a kind of uh, tone of decency, a kind of lowering the temperature. And even the visual messaging uh, with the graphics that they've released that are kind of old time looking about stimulus checks, that's very, very important to convey a sense of uh, that the government cares about you because Corruption is when you turn public offices into a mechanism of private enrichment. And as such, you are bilking, defrauding the public in, in an ethical sense, in a practice sense. So um, also, they've moved to remove Trump-era appointees, for example, judicial ones. And this is often done, but it has a special meaning now because uh, Trump succeeded in politicizing justice so much. So. I, I take your point about this presentation of, you know, good guys are back, ethical government is back, the government is going to work for you. At the same time, Biden's had this, I think, uh, sort of politically understandable desire to rise above that. Um, and he's remained kind of arm's length about the impeachment process. And what do you what do you make of that as a as a pro-democracy? Strategy. I understand the political logic of, of wanting to stay out of the mud, but when the the stakes are that the opposing party is trying to convince half the country that the, the incoming president is illegitimate, does it make some sense for someone in that in Biden's position to say, no, we need to we need to actually clear the air about this now? Yes, it does make sense. And I think that in the time leading up to the inauguration, especially also early, uh, earlier, it made sense for a more low-key approach. But um, now it's time to really stand up for democracy, stand up for, um, because January 6th is the logical outcome of everything that uh, Trump was doing, because he made what happens with corruption and uh, is that these kinds of leaders make people feel that violence is the only answer, and they're also rewarded for lawlessness. And everything that um, Trump did actually, since he refused to recognize the election, um, not only draws from 
all eras of authoritarian history, from military coups to election manipulation to early fascism, which was you know January sixth. It it also uh, it, it sends it sends a message to to others who could normalize this kind of behavior. And and the GOP is this is something that it's a hard truth for and a scary truth for Americans to accept. But the GOP is a far right party. Um, it is an, a party with a profoundly authoritarian political culture now. And comparative study, uh, politics studies have come out that show that it does not line up anymore with conservative parties. It lines up with far-right parties. So what do we do? It's an emergency. We only have these two huge parties, very different than other countries. And one of them is no longer interested in democratic culture with a small d. The other thing, the reason it's very important to proceed is that I've noticed great uh, concern that there's what I would call a, a, an organized politics of forgetting, an attempt to kind of cast a fog over our eyes and pretend that the violence didn't really happen. The GOP has a, an, a concerted effort to make people minimize and forget about the violence and to, in fact, uh, politicians like AOC who spoke out about it, they were trying to discredit her story. And it's very interesting to me that former Vice President Pence, who had people trying to hang him, has not spoken about that trauma. You're not allowed to hear about it, in a sense, because, of course, this will implicate Trump more. So this is the time for uh, the Biden administration to make a very strong statement about how it views things. There could be truth and reconciliation commissions at the local level. And I think there has to be a, uh, a commission on government ethics, uh, just as there has to be a commission on extremism uh, in institutions. Of course, the military has to do its own accounting. So we need, the Biden admission has to make a lot of strong statements in the next weeks after the trial concludes uh, for morale of people and to set the country on a different course. So the trial is ongoing as we record this. We think it's unlikely that two-thirds of voting senators will decide to uh, convict him. But let's say they do. On the one hand, the conviction and disqualification would pertain only to this culminating post-election event. On the other hand, it would be a seismic political and historical event. Would it be reasonable for the administration, Congress, and others to sort of dial back a bit in the wake of something that momentous and say this is enough to discourage future presidential law-breaking and sedition? The stakes are too high. We know there are many, many people now who, who in, in, from Trump supporters and other GOP supporters to most scarily many elected officials who believe uh, they not only uh, feel that uh, violence as embodied in January 6th was justified, that any means of staying in power is justified. So it's very important to send that message. Now, what's interesting though in history is there's a phenomenon called elite defection. And I kept waiting for it to happen, but I didn't really think it would. And this is when people think that the leader is on the way out important people, even sometimes who supported the leader from the very beginning, they jump ship. They st especially, they stop, um, they, they distance themselves from his, uh, his improprieties, from his loyalty, and they s strike out on their own. 
And it's very amazing to me that this didn't happen more in the GOP because Trump lost the election, but it shows what a tight hold he has on the party. And if he were convicted, sometimes it takes a few people and then it becomes a flood. If he were convicted, those who voted to convict him would set the tone for the new party because at stake is the future of the Republican Party. And parties in history that back these people don't generally do well. Um, they end up deprofessionalized and discredited. So I think if a conviction happened, it would cause a, um, it would be the salvation of the GOP, actually. Is there like a, a, a recent-ish historical example of, a, of an authoritarian party having this kind of unraveling in, in its late days and the elements within the party that kind of brought about the unraveling take over as the newer, more ethical, more pro-democratic guard? Well, it's very rare for somebody to be voted out. And we did, I want to send a message of uh, a happy message, because <laughs> I'm always uh, talking about gloom and doom, that we did something very unusual, because what was going on was a process of authoritarian capture, very clearly. And the, the more uh, time goes on, the more people will, will, things will come out and people will see that. And we interrupted that by voting Trump out in the middle of a pandemic, no less. So nobody can take that away from us, what we did. But it's very rare. And so, and so the analogies are not perfect. They're more like situations of dictatorship. But for example, in Chile, Pinochet, the dictator, was voted out. And eventually, hundreds and hundreds of officers and generals, I think over a thousand in the end, were prosecuted for human rights violations and other things and, and, and corruption. And the army lost, this was the main institution rather than a party in this case. The army lost its luster. It lost its prestige. Um, but it took prosecutions to do that. Pinochet never went to jail because uh, very few of these people go to jail, but everybody around them goes to jail including in my book, Strongman, I have a whole thing about personal lawyers of people who go to jail. <laughs> it's never good to be a personal lawyer of a strongman. Hear that, Rudy? After the break, we look beyond Trump and explore what should be done about the many little Trumps who are still in his orbit vying for power. When we return. Rubicon is brought to you by Babbel. The phrase, déjame en paz, is a succinct and punchy way to tell your quarantine buddy to leave you alone. I knew this once because my mom was a native Spanish speaker, and I used to bother her a lot. But I learned it again after years of neglecting Spanish thanks to Babbel. One of my goals for the new year was to relearn everything I've forgotten about the Spanish language, and Babbel has made the whole process addictively fun and easy with bite-sized lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Take one lesson for a dog walk or two or three for a workout and feel doubly accomplished. Unlike the infamous language classes you took in high school, Babbel designs their courses with practical real-world conversations in mind. Things you'll get to use in everyday life. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. 
Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use promo code Rubicon. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com, code Rubicon, for an extra three months free. Babbel, language for life. Rubicon is brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female-first can wine brand that was founded to change not only the way a product is consumed, but the way an industry and culture have operated for generations. Bev's mission is rooted in taking charge of your choices and responsibilities and giving voice to those who have been historically silenced. A couple years ago, my local grocery store started identifying bottled wine brands as female-founded, and now Bev makes supporting women winemakers even easier. In a male-dominated industry, Bev is breaking norms and creating something from the female perspective that is approachable, fun, and consumer-centric. They offer five varietals, Rosé, Sauve Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Pinot Noir, as well as a limited edition extra fizzy sparkling white wine. I've been making a, let's call it a dent, in our Pinot Noir shipment, but I imagine I'll be switching to the sparkling white when the weather warms up. Their wines are dry, crisp, and a little fizzy, super refreshing and delicious. They have zero sugar and only three carbs with 100 calories per serving. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is a glass and a half of wine, perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. A 24-pack is equal to eight bottles of wine, and their four-packs are great for gifting, hosting, and social distance hangouts. Bev ships straight to your door, and shipping is always free. We've also worked out an exclusive deal for Rubicon podcast listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack so you can check out all of their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com slash Rubicon or use code Rubicon at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash Rubicon. Rubicon is brought to you by Policy Genius. It's the shortest month of the year, meaning you've got slightly less time to check off your February to-dos. Luckily, Policy Genius can help you check off two big items with ease compare life insurance rates, and save 50% or more in the process. That means more cash to put towards the things you care about, whatever they may be. Plus, there's absolutely no hassle. Their licensed experts work for you, not the insurance companies, so they can offer unbiased advice when you need it. Here's how it works. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Policy Genius will compare policies starting at as little as $1 a day. You might even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they'll take care of everything. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. If you're worried that March is just around the corner and you've barely gotten anything done, take a deep breath. Policy Genius will help you make the most of this short month in minutes. You could save 50% or more by comparing quotes and feel good knowing that your loved ones would be taken care of if anything were to happen. Go to policygenius.com to get started. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Welcome back to Rubicon. My guest is author and historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who wrote the book Strong Men about the common tactics authoritarians use to take power and how they can be stopped. Right now, congressional Democrats are trying to convince Republicans to convict Donald Trump for inciting the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th and bar him from holding further public office. But what about all the corruption that happened before January 6th? 
Should we turn over all of those stones while the nation is in the midst of so many other crises? You, you mentioned Berlusconi. I have him in my notes. In the early days of the Trump presidency, liberals here were wrestling with how to resist authoritarianism because it wasn't a muscle I think most people had flexed here. And uh, a popular line of thinking arose out of Italy uh, where some practitioners compared Trump to Berlusconi and counseled Americans to oppose Trump with normal, boring politics, right? Like, don't follow him down the outrage rabbit holes, like whatever Trump's analogy to the bunga bunga parties is. Don't pay attention to that stuff. Focus on helping people with policy. Um, and a big part of me thinks that Democratic leaders in Congress over the the four years overinterpreted that lesson. But to what extent does it apply now? Was it Was it wise counsel? If it was... How should the governing party now think about striking a balance between succeeding on its own terms as a governing party and exposing the failures and scandals of the last administration? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And um, there does have to be a balance. In one sense, you know, this again, so there's the fear that Trump would be a martyr. There's also the fear that Democrats would look vindictive. But uh, right-wing media is showing the people like Nancy Pelosi and et cetera as vindictive anyway. Those storylines are already set. That said, we're in a very uh, unprecedented situation because we've had three crises overlapping, uh, a political crisis, um, but also we have mass death occurring all around us from the coronavirus and its mismanagement. And we have an economic crisis with widespread homelessness. People had to default on their mortgages, et cetera. So I don't mind the forward-looking, um, can-do, non-rhetorical, let's-get-things-done attitude that is forward-facing, because people need hope. One, one of the saddest things about having um, not just Trump, but the problem is that Little Trumps populate the system. It's not just the leader. It's someone like, uh, they used to call them little Mussolinis and little Hitlers. Um, you have people like Mike Pompeo who become liberated by the lawlessness, by the thrill, or Lindsey Graham or William Barr. They come into their own when there's somebody who tells them there's no limits, which Mike Pompeo called swagger. So people are, are demoralized by this. Um, and a kind of business forward looking um, approach gives a very much needed hope because living under corrupt politicians who scorn you is, is, uh, makes people feel very hopeless. So let's talk about the balance in a different way or uh, a different kind of balance um, between accountability defined relative to Trump and his administration and the little Trumps versus accountability for the fact that his party is rapidly radicalizing against democracy. If we're weighing these as a choice, is it more important to exact a price for bad deeds that have already happened or to retrofit the democracy in a forward-looking sense so that popular majorities can rule and maybe the thing that that gets in the way of the of the, you know, the people coming in Trump's wake is that they just can't win. I don't think it's either or. It's about priorities. I think that if we're not going to do it at a national level, I think um, making people pay a price 
at the professional level is important. There are bar associations, there are policemen's associations, because people, you know, they may not care about a, a passing headline, even if it's in the Washington Post or a, insults on Twitter, but they do care about how they live their life at the local level, at their churches. Many conservatives would like you to believe this is the evil force of cancel culture. In the case of Josh Hawley, lost a book deal. Since when are people telling us we can't say X, Y, or Z, or if you say it, you'll be canceled? And that means that you'll be socially ostracized, that you can even lose your job. But Ruth thinks this kind of social censure is an important step to making sure Trump or someone like him can't roar back to power like Berlusconi did. So it's not really shaming. It's uh, showing respect for accountability to have some kind of censure. And that's very important because if you don't have an accounting of past practices, history shows that people will do the same thing and more. When, when Berlusconi, nothing much happened in, those, in 2006 when he was voted out, that crucial window. When he came back in 2008, he was absolutely even more arrogant than ever. And all the things he had done, you know, pleasing Putin, he had a very, uh, he was Putin's lackey. All, all of the things he did, all the illegal things in every way were hugely souped up because he felt invincible. I tend to think of accountability measures as falling into a few different buckets, right? There's criminal process for anyone who broke the law. Um, there's exposure and truth, and hopefully that, that leads to some sort of social censure for the people who did wrong as its own bucket. And then there's uh, the sort of mechanical, how do you change the rules of democracy to make it harder for people like that to win? And as much as I'd like to max out on all of those, fill all those buckets all the way full, I realize that life doesn't always work out so conveniently. So if, like, what's the most important as far as preventing this from kind of happening again uh, with, with, the, with the out party coming back in more arrogant than ever? Well, some of the criminal process is, is going to be, with Trump particularly, is handled by New York, for example. It's not the, gov- it's not the federal government's affair, so some of that, um, I think they all go together, to be honest, because, for example, when you talk about changing the rules of democracy, one thing that's very clear is we need higher forms of vetting for presidential candidates, but also for civil service. You know, the Trump administration changed the um, things about how appointees were made to make it easier for those with Um, unsavory backgrounds to come into government, which is exactly what authoritarians do. They need more people who are already compromised and don't care about ethics. That's the whole point of it. So, you know, so this is why I also think there have to be um, commissions or inter-military, you know, things inside the military and law enforcement uh, investigations of um, extremism and corruption because uh, this this is something that ends it. See, this connects. These are changes in the rules of democracy. Perhaps having different standards for uh, who's in government service. But if you uh, if you are uh, found wanting because you're found to be part of a neo-Nazi group, 
then you do get into the social censure part. So it's all connected. Um, I don't think we can just prioritize one. To their credit, Democrats aren't prioritizing one over the other. In Congress, they've introduced flagship legislation called the For the People Act, which would both democratize the anti-democratic aspects of our elections and campaign finance systems and impose new, stricter ethics requirements on Congress, the Supreme Court, and the president, including the disclosure of presidential tax returns. I think if we just take one of those things, uh, the disclosure of financial records, this is not only important because it will uncover conflicts of interest, including with foreign governments, because it's not just Trump. It was like Wilbur Ross. He failed to mention that he had a stake in a uh, company owned by Putin's son-in-law, um, you know, and on and on and on. It takes seriously kind of restoring dignity to government and responsibility, because the bedrock principles of, of anti-corruption are transparency as well as accountability. Transparency is very important. So transparency is about showing respect and for the people you are governing. It's, it's a form of humility. So there are also moral values involved in each of these um, proposals that also test the character of somebody. And we've seen how important character is because what, what Trump succeeded in doing, he set up a governance structure which is called an inner sanctum, which en encourages criming <laughs> where, and all of them do this, the hiring and the firing, the instability, the dysfunction, they all, all authoritarians have the same structures. Even those who seemed uh, kind of like Pinochet with his uniform, he constantly reshuffled his government. And the purpose of that is you have to, as you get more and more corrupt, you have to up the loyalty quotient. And they all have family members in governments. And I have a paragraph in my book about sons-in-law who are always in there uh, because they're convenient, uh, you know, vessels of crime. So his whole governance structure was based on um, secrecy with this inner circle and uh, lack of transparencies. I think the last time we did this as a country was after Nixon, Congress passed a slew of post-Watergate reforms. What should the experience of the Trump presidency impel Congress to do beyond what we've already discussed? And, and how can the reforms have any effect if a president embraces lawbreaking and his party endeavors to insulate him from consequences? As much as these reforms seem like they're important, if you can just ignore them and then use the impunity of politics, of having a whole political party behind you, what force can they have? Yeah, that's, that's a very difficult question because um, the, the rulers who succeed in having this kind of power are people who usually come to office already having lived for a long time in the zone of the gray zone between the legal and the illegal. Um, many, like, you know, Trump and Berlusconi and Putin were all under investigation when they came in, into office <laughs> with long histories in different ways of criming um, and lying and being expert liars, um, Putin for professional reasons. So when criminals are in power, it's very, very difficult uh, 
to, they're going to neutralize anything to do with transparency. Uh, and they're going to undo everything that was done before. A lot of what Trump did was actually undoing things. So when someone like that is in power, it's very hard. <laughs> but I think that the Biden administration is new and they have a pandemic on their hands and an economic crisis. So I think what they've done so far and what they propose sounds just right. And, uh, and what do they risk if they get it wrong? You know, one of the things that Trump uh, and GOP partners was trying to do in the last, as soon as they realized they were probably going to lose, was to sabotage the incoming Biden administration, to make it impossible through further accelerated mismanagement of coronavirus and, the econo and no economic relief, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that the Biden administration would be overwhelmed. And that's actually a playbook that uh, has been used in right-wing authoritarianism before where you discredit and, and try, you d try and depict the leader as illegitimate, but you also stack the um, deck uh, to make him, uh, you set him up to fail, basically. And this is where I'm, I'm worried about what extremists, meaning now the GOP and militia, um, will do to make these next years so turbulent uh, that there will be an increased demand for, quote, law and order government. That's, that's a kind of big picture thing. Which is why these bureaucratic reforms need to be highlighted and prioritized as much as possible. The other thing I would say that's an antidote to all this, it's really easy to focus on the glamour of the villains. And Trump knew how to monopolize the media case, okay, Twitter is gone now. But we need to incentivize anti-corruption behavior. We need to glamorize democracy advocates. We need to look back at those who struggled under difficult circumstances, who had their moments in the media, perhaps, you know, when they were whistleblowers, people who worked to protect democracy while Trump was trying to undo it. This is America. Here, right, matters. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman has a single ideology, and it is patriotism and service to the United States. And I think that Americans need to see these people. They need to read about them. Fiona Hill is the most competent witness I've ever seen before this committee. She brought a poise, expertise, and command of the facts, and an absolute lack of tolerance for the charitably put childish behavior and ridiculous conspiracy theories that have been spewing from the Republican members on the dais. And anti-corruption can be a very mundane business and bureaucrats can seem boring, but it's absolutely crucial to um, the health of democracy to have role models. Stacey Abrams lost two years ago and, and made herself stronger. Donald Trump lost two months ago and made himself weaker. That is the story. Highlight the, the work that people were doing often behind the scenes during the last four years to make sure things weren't worse. That's really important. I think I say in my book, Democracy Needs Heroes. And, you know, and it's liberal democracy, we, we've taken it for granted. I also think that faith is going to be very important. And the Biden administration is in, is in a good position to emphasize faith. I think that that is a... Uh 
is a very hopeful and productive place to end the conversation, actually. I'm happy to, happy to leave it there. Listener Aaron writes in, Thus far, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have been adamant that they do not support quote-unquote killing the filibuster. While I think their position is wrong, and I hope they reconsider, my question is about what Senate rules reform short of outright killing the filibuster could be proposed that would function to weaken the filibuster's obstructive effectiveness and or create more space for action in the Senate. Is it possible that such reforms could be characterized in such a way that more conservative Democratic senators could support them while still claiming they didn't quote-unquote kill the filibuster? This is a keen observation. Nearly everything opponents of filibuster abolition have said has been in response to questions about just that. Outright abolition. But the filibuster can be reformed to preserve some level of minority power without leaving it impossible for majorities to govern. There are a bunch of ways to do this, but most are devised around establishing something called the quote-unquote talking filibuster, like the kind we learned about from Mr. Smith. For instance, if a bill has more than 50 votes but less than 60, the Senate could set a new precedent that requires objecting senators to hold the floor and maintain a quorum to delay a final vote, but ultimately allow a bare majority to pass it once the objectors have been worn out. And with a new rule like this, opponents of abolishing the filibuster can honestly say they didn't kill it. They just reformed it. Rubicon is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. It's produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Veronica Simonetti is our audio engineer. Production support from Brian Semmel. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.